Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome to Talking Tudors episode 166. I'm your host Natalie Gruninger. Thank you so much for joining me today for this special anniversary episode of Talking Tudors. Four years ago today, I published the first ever episode of the podcast. Since then, I've recorded, edited and published 166 free episodes and interviewed so many exceptional people. This podcast is a huge part of my life and I thank you for joining me on this amazing journey. I'd like to thank the sponsor of today's podcast, Tudor Places Magazine. Tudor Places magazine explores the sites, buildings and interiors of the Tudor world and their stories past and present. From castles, palaces, abbeys, cathedrals, manor houses and churches, to guild halls, armhouses, schools, shops and military forts, Tudor Places magazine looks at what these buildings were like, where they were, how they were built, the people who built them and what we can still see of them now. The magazine shines a light on places from the Tudor world as they were then, and all of the discoveries and up-to-date knowledge about those places today. Each issue has ideas and suggested itineraries for visiting places with Tudor connections and insights about recent discoveries, along with interviews and book listings too. Readers can subscribe to print and digital editions of the magazine. Print copies can be posted worldwide. To find out more about this fantastic magazine and to subscribe, go to www.tudorplaces.com. It's been a very exciting week indeed. In case you missed the announcement on the last episode, my new book, The Final Year of Anne Boleyn, is now available for pre-order. I worked on this book for almost three years, but it's really the culmination of the last 13 years of study and research into the life and times of Anne Boleyn. I would be incredibly honoured if you'd consider pre-ordering a copy. Pre-publication sales are incredibly important to authors, which is why it would mean so much to me. The final year of Anne Boleyn will be published in the UK on November 30 and in the US in early 2023. You can pre-order your copy today from a number of online retailers, including the Book Depository, which offers free worldwide shipping. I'd also like to thank everyone who's chosen to support my podcast on Patreon and a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. Perhaps to celebrate this anniversary, you could leave me a review or share the podcast on social media. Why not make this the day that you join the Talking Tudors Patreon family? This would mean so much to me. If you're quick, you can take advantage of a special offer that I'm currently running. Check out all the details at patreon.com talkingtudors. Another way you can support the podcast is by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I'd love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to discuss our enduring fascination with the Tudors is Dr. Owen Emerson. Dr. Emerson is a social and cultural historian currently working as castle historian and assistant curator at the stunning Hever Castle in Kent, Anne Boleyn's childhood home. He completed his doctoral research at the University of Sussex. Owen's first book, co-authored with historian Claire Ridgway, is entitled The Boleyns of Hever Castle. His second book, co-authored with historian Kate McCaffrey, is entitled Becoming Anne, Connections, Culture, Court. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales.
Owen, welcome back to Talking Tudors. I keep luring you back to my podcast. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. What an honour to be here uh, for your anniversary episode. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you. Yes, it is a very exciting episode. It Today is the fourth anniversary of Talking Tudors. I can actually hardly believe it that it's been four years. I still remember when the um, the idea popped into my head and I thought, oh, that sounds good. I wonder if anyone will, will actually listen. I'll just give it a go. And here we are four years later. So thank you so much for joining me today. And I know that most people, I think, especially my listeners, because I've had you on the show so many times, know who you are and what you do. But do you mind just giving everyone a short introduction about about you? Yes, of course. Uh, Well, my name is Dr. Erin Emerson. I'm a social and cultural historian. Uh, I completed my doctoral research at the University of Sussex. I'm the co-author of two books, uh, The Blinds of Hever Castle with uh, historian Claire Ridgway and Becoming Anne Connections Culture Court with historian and assistant curator Kate McCaffrey. Uh, I've been in a few documentaries, including The Belinda Scandalous Family with the BBC. And I'm really fortunate to work at Hever Castle and Belinda's childhood home uh, as the castle historian and assistant curator. That's fantastic. And I think if I remember correctly, your um, BBC documentary is out in the US soon. Is that right, Owen? It is, yes. I believe it's on the 8th of August that it's premiering on PBS. So very exciting times ahead. I loved working on that one. It was it was lots of fun. Now, because it is the anniversary of Talking Tuners, I thought what we could do is chat a little bit about why there's this continued fascination with the Tudor period. And it is, of course, a worldwide phenomena isn't it like it's not just restricted oh, yeah. to to the UK or anything like that it is just all over the world there are fans of Tudor history and I have been asking some other lovely Tudor historian buddies to share with me why they think this is the case and now Owen I want to ask you so I want I've got lots of questions that I want to ask you but before we <laughs> jump straight in can you tell us a little bit about what sparked your interest in the Tudors? I can yes so it might be a surprise but My first memories as a child relate to the Tudor era and very specifically my mum showing me the glorious film Anne of the Thousand Days when I was roughly four years old. Something about that film completely captured my imagination at that young, very young age and um, it soon became sort of an obsession I would say and I remember all of my birthday trips either being to Hever Castle, where about a third of that film was shot, uh, or the Tower of London. Really, Hever sort of became a family place almost, you know, a place to go to the theatre, have picnics, and very much became uh, quite quickly the place I wanted to work one day. But more broadly, sort of every Christmas present, birthday present was Tudor-related, books, videos, uh, prints of portraits, And actually, I became very quickly fascinated by different interpretations of the Tudor story and and more specifically how arguments were formed. I became really a historiography uh, geek, I guess, at an early age. And I actually think that meant that I didn't do particularly well at GCSE and A-level history, really because of sort of the prescriptive format of those approaches I wasn't very good at regurgitating a set narrative and it didn't really interest me particularly when I didn't agree with it or if I was aware that there was sort of a counter narrative or or other arguments to consider so actually I didn't do well academically with history until I got to university which I was able to access with the help of a really extraordinary woman and a much missed woman, Anna Spender, who is then the curator of Hever Castle. And I didn't have the grades to get into uni, but she allowed me to come to Hever for an afternoon where she gave me some really, really sage advice about how to prepare for an entrance essay. And I owe a huge amount to her. She absolutely adored Hever. She did a huge amount to develop that place. And so much of her remains there. And I was sort of a very, very much a beneficiary of her her generosity. So yeah, that's that's sort of my how my interest in the Tudor era began, how it developed and how it's sort of taken me here. 
Yes, I love that story. And I imagine that there's lots of people listening that are grateful that you've actually shared that because perhaps they didn't do too well at school or or maybe they've recently graduated and they were thinking they wanted to do history, but they didn't enjoy it that much in high school or, or whatnot. So I think that's really quite inspirational. And funnily enough, I'm quite the same. I, I did modern history in high school. Do not ask me why. That is, I, I have <laughs> no idea why that choice came up. But anyway, <laughs> and then I didn't actually study history degrees at university. But still, I'm here and making a career of what I love. So I think it's really great to, to share that with people. And I've heard it from others before, other historians, academics, even that have said that high school was not good for them. You know, they weren't academic. Right. And then this love was kind of ignited a little bit later. So it's never too late, people listening. If you want to, to follow your love of Tudor history, it is really, really never too late. It really, really isn't too late. And there are so many different routes into history. You don't just have to go down an academic one. They're all valid. And yeah, I, I would just encourage people not to not to see where they've got to sort of academically as their constraint, you know, or as a constraint, because there are many, many ways um, to get into history, to, to love it to work in it so yes think outside the box and just go for it absolutely I totally agree with you so let's jump into this question I'm, I'm really eager to hear your thoughts about this so why do you think Owen that readers and viewers are absolutely insatiable when it comes to the Tudors such a good question and I think there's an obvious drama of this dynasty's history and the fact that kind of if it was fictionalized you may well question if the plot was pushing credulity. However, because of the wildness of this story, it is easily digestible. Every age group and every level of education. The Tudors, especially in the, in the UK, have long been a staple of primary education, popular history books and of television and film screens. And I think much to the dismay of other equally fascinating eras, the Tudors really do monopolise um, the popular consciousness. And I do think it's easy to understand why. I mean, this is a dynasty founded on a battlefield in the wake of the murder of two young princes. There is the precariousness of this family trying to secure an heir, which sort of threads through the age, beginning with the much longed for heir, Arthur, Prince of Wales, suddenly dying and the spare Henry picking up that baton. And then, of course, we have the absolute preposterousness of that king having six wives, of killing two of them, struggling to secure his throne with a male heir. There's all the bombast of his glory hunting and financially ruinous wars with France, the, the glittering gold of empty promises with summits and treaties. And there's, you know, then there's the cataclysmic break with Rome and the destruction of the monasteries. We have self-made men raised high, you know, very high and then cut down. We have princesses and daughters delegitimized, but kept in the line of succession, leaving them perilously positioned. You know, we've got a boy king radicalized by his uncle and protector. Under his rule, we have Protestant Reformation. And that boy king then goes on to kill both of his uncles with a frankly terrifying coldness. We have crisis year when Edward tries to jettison his sisters from the throne in favour his, of his equally radical cousin Jane, only for Queen Mary to triumph and to enact uh, a radical counter-reformation. We have rebellion, bloodshed, the imprisonment of the rival sister, the Marian persecutions, an, an alliance with Spain, and the, all the disappointments that Mary uh, encountered with Philip of Spain. And then, of course, we have the myth and spectacle of Gloriana, the Virgin Queen, and all of the smoke and mirrors at play with her mythic reign. We have the active denigration of Queen Mary during this time, and conversely, the rehabilitation of Mary's nemesis, the great whore, Elizabeth's mother, Anne Boleyn. But actually, I think our interest is bigger than the ridiculousness of that narrative. It's the first period in history where we can really get a good understanding of what these key characters actually looked like, for example, with the development of far more lifelike portraiture. We have an absolute dearth of documentation. Letters, papers, finances, inventories, child documents, diaries, wills, dispatches, which take us to the very heart of social and political life. And, 
you know, we can hear the music that these individuals played and listened to. We can cook and taste their food. We can walk in the rooms they occupied in astonishing survival, uh, surviving places like Hampton Court, the Tower, Hever Castle. And, you know, even technology has allowed us to raise sunken ships of this era and to study the minutiae of everyday life uh, aboard these vessels via the artefacts we've uncovered. And as you once brilliantly recognised, it's only time that separates us from these amazing actors. And I actually think that nostalgia plays a massive part here. There's something really primal, I think, about the feelings we get from revisiting old, well-trodden stories, almost as our ancestors did when sitting around the hearth and telling stories. Very few of us have a hearth anymore, we do have one at Heva, which I love lighting, but we do now have Netflix and widescreen TVs and Kindles. And actually, it's of no surprise to me at all that the story of the Tudors and, and their reign is a story that people return to again and again. And I think it's an, a far from uncomplicated habit of ours. Uh, the uses of nostalgia can be very, very problematic at times. But the Tudors really have become sort of a staple of a national and international identity. You mentioned that this is not just about the UK and England. Uh, this is an international phenomenon. So we have this you know, extraordinary, almost unbelievable story, which has become a part of our national identity. But then we also have this burgeoning field of scholarship, which is aiming to illuminate, expand on, and often challenge this grand narrative that everyone now almost instinctively knows. And I find this really exciting, very challenging at times, and often wonderfully explosive. There is a real tension when challenging this grand narrative, and I personally love it. So it is thanks to people like you who allow people to access new ideas on such a regular basis. This is the, the wonder of what you do. And, you know, it's, it's wonderful to be talking about this on your podcast because this is how a lot of people access new ideas about this period. So thank you. Thank you. That was an absolutely exceptional response. Like I'm just, I was taking notes and then I just stopped because I just wanted to take it all in and enjoy it. And you have brought up a lot of the things that some of those historians I mentioned have also spoken about in their uh, responses. In particular, one that I saw come up quite a bit was what you mentioned about the fact that this is the first real period in which we can get a sense of what these people looked like. We can make a real emotional yes. connection with them. And we, of course, have people like Hans Holbein to thank and other wonderful artists of the period. But if we think of the, you know, previous centuries, we're not able to make that connection as we're desperate to know what people looked like, but we, you know, we can't kind of connect with them because there's not enough of that visual evidence left. So I think that is a really amazing point. And all the other, the summary of the drama of the period, oh, and I was just shaking my head. I can't believe even being so familiar with the story, what an extraordinary story it is. And as you say, it, you know, if for someone that came from another planet would probably imagine we're making the whole thing up because how can all that be true? But it <laughs> yes. is true, which is, you know, extraordinary. And I think they're also perfectly positioned, aren't they, the Tudors, the 16th century? I think it's, you know, far back enough for it to be fascinating and intriguing and, and quite different, but not so far back that we can't relate and, and form a connection and see ourselves in them. That's yes, true, isn't absolutely. it? We, when we look at these people, you know, I get a sense of, oh, yes, okay, I can, I can recognise aspects of my own life and my own self in many of these people, which I think allows us to form those powerful bonds that just keep us coming back for more. Totally. So it is, it's extraordinary. And another question that I wanted to ask you, Owen, I am an absolute lover of mysteries. I've loved them oh, yes. since I was a little child and I had the great pleasure of being a child during the 80s. And apart from the fantastic music and great hairdos, there was this, there were so many shows about mysteries there was I think unsolved mysteries and listeners can write in and tell me about some other ones great mysteries of the world I think there was quite a lot of them oh, yeah. that explored all these amazing mysteries so what are your favorite mysteries from this period 
god there's so many aren't there? my goodness and and actually i think this is one of the big reasons that we all love the tudors actually there are so many loose ends for us to attempt to tie up and they they're often really slippery impervious to our best attempts and it's a really messy landscape for us to try and negotiate and we often get lost so there's something really exciting about the challenge, isn't there, of yeah. trying to um, uh, unpick and uh, sort of darn up reason and, and theory to try and, you know, crack these amazing mysteries. And, I, you know, I think one of the obvious answers would be who killed the princes in the tower. It's one of those questions that never really, for me, gets satisfactorily answered. And some of the theories are utterly bonkers. Um, but that's that's what makes it exciting, that's isn't it? That's the beauty you know, of the it, isn't it? Yeah, 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 totally. I mean, one of my pet peeves, actually, is this this modern... Well, it's, it's not particularly modern, but it's certainly not a contemporary idea that, that Margaret Beaufort um, killed the princes in the tower. That I don't know why that grinds my gears so much. But yes, that's, that's definitely like one of my favourite sort of mysteries. One of the mysteries I would personally really like to get to the bottom of is what happened to Amy Robsart. Now, having having spoken to many, many women who wear period-accurate reproduction headdresses, the notion that her headgear remained on her head after falling down a staircase is a rather fanciful one, I think. So what did happen to her? I would love to get to the bottom of that one. I really would. Uh, something doesn't add up and again you know there have been many many wonderful theories but I just want to know what the answer is uh, it's just tantalizing isn't it but a key one for me it might might not seem like the biggest mystery in the world to listeners but Anne Boleyn's birth date is one of the, the biggest mysteries in my life it's sort of like plagued me from day one there have been many many valiant attempts to crack it but I would love to have more certainty. And I had a really interesting debate with the magnificent historians Claire Ridgway and Gareth Russell about this recently. And I would urge you all to look out for Gareth's forthcoming arguments for not a 1501 or a 1507 date, but a 1504-5 date in the coming months. I'm not going to tell you what the arguments are because they are Gareth's arguments, but it got me thinking again. You know, I'd, I'd finally settled on a date and it got me thinking again. And I love that this is very much a live debate still. And it really matters. It really matters how old Anne was when she died. Because if she was younger than historians had previously believed, then the likelihood of her being killed solely because of her ability to get pregnant in the future shifts all of a sudden. You know, it, there's something at stake with this particular mystery so that's one of my favorites i guess this is a mystery but i'd love to find out what happens to amberlin's replies to his so-called love letters what did they say we can only glean really snippets of information via how henry himself had interpreted Anne's words and then responded to them so they're not really a reflection of what she actually said. They are a reflection of his understanding of what she said or his interpretation or maybe even what he wanted to hear. And I think I think her letters could tell us so much about their so-called courtship. And, you know, I would love to know what happened to them too. Were they stolen as well? Are they in the Vatican's secret archive and no one's telling us about it? Though? Or were they just burnt in a fury and frenzy? That's, that's a massive biggie for me. I'd love to know more about Thomas Cromwell's youth. That's a big mystery. His time in Italy in particular. And also a biggie for me is what happened just before Anne Boleyn's marriage to Henry was annulled. What were the conversations that happened in the Tower? What was offered to Anne? Was there a bargaining chip at play? There is so much mystery around that um, particular event. And I just want to know what happened. So, yes, they, they are my biggies. I'm, there are so many more, but they are the ones that sort of 
fascinate me. They're all amazing mysteries. And, you know, the, as you know, Owen, the Anne Boleyn ones drive me absolutely crazy as well and have fueled much, oh, no. of, much of the work that I do. And I saw that lively debate between yourself and Claire and, and Gareth. It was so entertaining. Um, I'm Yeah, I'm open to, to hear, definitely to hear Gareth's ideas. And I'm quite open to a little bit of a later date, as we've discussed. Not quite so yeah. late as some people think, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to... <laughs> keep an open mind I think that's that's what we need to do in these situations don't we definitely definitely and, and I have a lot of questions about portraits you know especially portraits of and I am absolutely convinced that Holbein would have painted her like I, I'm just so oh, yes. convinced I would put a lot of money on this so what happened to him why don't we have a record of even him painting it where has it gone has someone got it hidden somewhere you know did they start using canvas at that point and it's rolled up somewhere in a cupboard like who knows? There could be so many, so many things that happen to that. But it's wonderful just thinking about it, isn't it? Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I spend a lot of the time that I am I'm not talking, which is quite a lot of time, to be honest, thinking about these things and tying myself in knots and getting thoroughly frustrated. So, <laughs> Yes, I'm, I'm glad I'm, I've got good company in that. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think? There are so many what if moments in this, you know, sliding door moments where things could have just gone slightly different and completely changed the whole trajectory of the story. And of course, then history. So what are your kind of favorite or biggest what if moments? And how do you think just for fun, that they would have changed the course of history? Oh, I love, I love these kind of questions. I really do. And there are a number, there are a number that sort of like, I often think about actually, most often when I'm up in the long gallery at Hever, uh, because so many of the key players in this story are represented with contemporary portraits up there. And quite often, for example, I will pass our portrait of Prince Arthur and think, what if you hadn't died? What if you hadn't died? What would it what what would the story look like then? What would an Arthurian reign have looked like? You know, would Catherine and Arthur have been more successful in providing an heir? That's a real biggie for me. And particularly, you know, you try to think, well, when would a reformation have occurred in England without the great matter? I kind of think there would have been one. I'm almost certain there would have been one. But when would it have been? That's a huge one for me. Is that one that you think about? Absolutely. That's, you know, I remember standing in Worcester Cathedral, right? Oh, and that's where Arthur's buried. Yes. Yes. And standing there and just thinking, oh my gosh, what would have, what would have happened had he been healthy, survived, not gotten ill? Would he have, as you said, remained with Catherine? Uh, what would Henry have done? Would he have entered the church? Good old Henry VIII. That wouldn't have been Henry VIII, <laughs> Henry Tudor. You know, all those things. And then you just think of the ripple effect of the events that aren't going to happen if Henry's not on yeah. the throne. Some of them may have come about anyway, like you say, the Reformation. And someone asked me that recently, do I think the Reformation would have happened without kind of Henry and Anne's whole situation? And it's a really interesting question to ponder, isn't it? Because I think those it ideas were, would have filtered through anyway at some point yes. perhaps it would have been a little bit later who knows but um it's it's such an interesting question to think about it massively is and I often think you know another one what if Catherine of Aragon had had a surviving son and I often think this in relation to Anne what would Anne's life have been like yeah. you know and one of the big questions that comes out of that you know and I I don't buy into this narrative that Anne grew up wanting to be queen I do not believe that for a second I think she she was put in a situation and she did what she did what Berlin's did best in finding the best possible outcome for themselves in the situation they found themselves in but you know what would a you know, would she have just been a mistress of many manners and had a, a relatively quiet life? I don't think so. I think she'd have definitely been a courtier. She'd have she'd have married someone fairly important, I think, and you know, would have had quite an interesting court career. I I should imagine that's that's one of the biggies for me. You know, what what would these women's lives have looked like had they not been thrust into each other's paths and pitted against each other one of the big ones for me is about henry actually and what if he'd just recognized that his sister margaret had a son and placed him in the line of succession you know would this concession on his part have saved this enormous turmoil that henry's heirs then had to negotiate 
that's that's one that I often think about. And, you know, what if Edward had lived longer and provided heirs? Would Mary and Elizabeth have been Queen's consort of other countries? You, you can't imagine them in that more subservient role, can you? Like, you know, they, they were such amazing queens. Uh, Queen's Regnant. So another biggie for me, because I love 1553. What if Edward had actually ratified his device for the succession with Parliament? What if it had been a foolproof challenge to Henry's will, an act of succession? What would 1553 have looked like then? I think it still would have been very, very messy indeed. (laughs) I don't think Mary would have... um, (laughs) Would have gone quietly, shall we say. So... Yeah, it might well have led to full out, full, full, full out sort of civil war. That's something that fascinates me. I, don't, I, I still don't think, even with the support of Parliament, that Jane's reign would have been a long one. Fa- absolutely fascinating. And then, of course, sort of the last one I'm going to mention here: What if Elizabeth had married? What if she'd had children? How long would the Tudor dynasty have actually lasted for? You know, one of their their great failures as a dynasty, was securing the succession. But what if it hadn't have been so messy? What if Elizabeth had chosen to marry? You know, maybe if she'd married Anjou, what, what, would, what would we look like now? It, I think it's a really fascinating one. It is absolutely so fascinating. You know, what if the Spanish Armada had succeeded? What if they'd invaded? Yes. There's just no end to it, really, <laughs> is there? You can just keep going. And it's, it's, I think, a telltale sign of what a rich period of history this is, that we have so many, you know, paths that we can explore, even just like this for a bit of fun. But it's so fascinating. And we talked a little bit before about portraits. Oh, and I know you love portraits oh. as much as I do. We often share the ones we love. So what is one or two or a few of your favourite portraits from the 16th century? So I should caveat this with art history is not my area of expertise, but early modern portraiture is a particular passion of mine. I actually collect portrait miniatures. I love portrait miniatures for some reason. I think they're amazing. But I am also very privileged to work with and assist in the curation and care of some of the finest Tudor portraits in a private collection, I believe, at Hever Castle. And I am learning a huge amount about how these portraits were created, uh, how they have changed over time, how they can be restored. And that's one of the most exciting aspects of my job, actually. I love every bit of it. And getting to work with these really extraordinary portraits is joy. So... Having said all that, we do have a massive collection of Tudor portraiture <laughs> and there is a huge, huge amount more out there in the world. So you're really challenging me here. And it's definitely going to be a plural answer. I think one of my all-time favourites has to be the Heva Rose portrait of Anne Boleyn. There is so much mystery around that portrait and I've had the wonderful pleasure of working with my friend Lee Porritt recently and um, trying to uncover some of the provenance of it uh, until recently we had no idea when it had arrived at Heva but we have sort of almost confirmed now that it likely came from Asington Hall in Suffolk. It was part of the collection of the Gurdon family who were related to the Boleyn. Two of the Gurdon daughters lived and died at Blickling Hall, of course the Boleyn's family seat. So we are getting closer, I think, to having a better understanding of how, why and when the many corridor portraits of Anne Boleyn were created. Now, when this portrait was exhibited in 2007 at the Lost Faces exhibition, it was given a circa date of 1550, which I think is an unlikely creation date, purely because Edward um, is, you know, is during Edward's reign. So uh, was the circa, we're now questioning, placed on it because of the allowance either side of that central date that it necessarily allows? So roughly 15 years either side, which puts us potentially in the early reign of Elizabeth, or potentially (laughs) it places us in the latter years of her mother's reign of course the subject of the portrait Anne's reign and it might surprise you to know listeners because you almost certainly heard the phrase there are no contemporary portraits of Anne Boleyn that very very few 
of the portraits that survive with Anne's name on it have ever been scientifically tested. They might have been stylistically dated, but I can only think really of three portraits that have had any paint analysis done on them or have indeed had their panels dated by dendrochronology. So I'm really hoping that in the coming years, we can sort of collectively put a project together which finally creates a chronology of when these portraits were painted, because it's important, I think. I think it matters. And if we could get a timeline together, we could really get a better understanding of what Anne Boleyn actually looked like. I do think there was far more to Anne Boleyn's story than her looks. <laughs> but, you know, all of us would love to, to get a glimpse of Anne. It's one of the great tragedies that we aren't really able to, to get a glimpse of her. So. You know, I, I, I'm really hopeful that we are hopefully going to get a, a better timeline together of when these portraits were created. There are many of them. And who knows, one of them may turn out to be a contemporary portrait after all. I've already mentioned one of my other favourite portraits. It's the small easel portrait of Arthur, Prince of Wales, again held at Hever. This is an absolute treasure. It's older than any portrait held in the National Portrait Gallery, and it's the only known portrait to date to Arthur's lifetime. It is held incredibly securely at Hever, but it is really hard to sort of overstate its significance. It was likely created as a betrothal portrait for Catherine of Aragon. It's an incredibly intimate little portrait, and it passed to King Henry VIII and can be found in his inventories, and it was in the possession of no less than 11 monarchs thereafter. It's an extraordinary little object, and it's an honour uh, to see it on an almost daily basis, and it's quite often the first thing that I purposefully look at in the morning to ensure it's there, and it's definitely the last thing I look for at night <laughs> as well. I love it. I had the, the absolute honour of holding it recently, and... It just sent shivers down my spine, to be honest, that it was likely held by Arthur. Yeah, I was just going to say that, that with those, you know, the, the miniatures and those smaller cabinet style portraits that started coming out, you know that the person's holding them up close to view them, especially the miniatures, which were often worn on the body, on the yes. skin, you know, yeah. or kept in kept in the bedchamber. Elizabeth had so many in her bedchamber that she'd only kind of bring out for very special guests. But it's incredible picturing it either in their palm or in their hand and how close they must have gotten to look at the details, you know, perhaps with a magnifying glass. Who knows? It's just extraordinary to think that now you're looking at that portrait that all these other incredible people have also looked at. They're so intimate, aren't they? That that's you've you've really tapped into why I love portrait miniatures because of their intimacy. And and actually, this portrait of Arthur, because of its size, it is very small. You know, it's called an easel portrait because it is tiny. It was most likely commissioned by Henry the Seventh. So he quite likely held it. I should imagine Elizabeth of York held it, and certainly Arthur did. And Catherine of Aragon, it was one of her beloved possessions. And then Henry VIII obviously held it at some point. It was in his collection. So, you know, it just kind of baffles. Not only have they looked on this thing, but they've actually held it, and now I'm holding it. It, honestly, it, it's a, such an honour, it really is. And I would desperately encourage people, if they can, to come and see it. because And just take a bit of time to stand there and really think, you know, what eyes have been on this thing. It's, it's quite a remarkable experience. Lastly, one of my other favourite portraits is a recently restored portrait in the National Portrait Gallery. And it's the full-length portrait of Queen Catherine Parr, which is attributed to Master John. I love this portrait. I've always loved it. I mean, when I was a kid, it was still called Lady Jane Grey. And I remember going to the National Portrait Gallery especially to see it because I had a, a real affinity with Jane in my youth. And, of course, it's subsequently been revealed not to be Jane Grey at all. It's Catherine Parr. But I, I remember as a child just staring at the detail in the clothing. And because it's full size, it's quite unusual in comparison to the remaining portraits of the other queens. Uh, although we do know that full-length portraits, for example, of Anne Boleyn once existed. But this seems very unusual. 
actually, for us, in, in comparison with the other surviving portraits, it's almost like she can just sort of step out. She's all there. Everything's there. And I just am dazzled by the extravagance of her attire, the jewels. You are under no illusion that this is a queen. And if, if I could take one portrait home, I think it would have to be that. I utterly adore it. It's gorgeous. It is a fabulous portrait. And and I plan to, to show some images of all these portraits that you've mentioned on social media so that everyone can can have a look at just how magnificent they are. It's just, and, and I like that you've got the contrast between the obviously very intimate ones and then this very quite large portrait of Catherine Parr, which is an extraordinarily beautiful portrait. As you say, yes. completely dazzling even after all these centuries. So you can just imagine what it must have been like when it was fresh, you know, freshly painted. It it must have just been mind-boggling. So changing the subject slightly, I want to know what you think are some of the greatest innovations of the Tudor period? Oh, this is such a good question. Uh, And there are so many. You know, we could talk about chimneys. We could talk about tennis, (laughs) theatre, pamphlets in the press. We could talk about knitting machines if you wanted to. Uh, upholstery platform shoes uh, <laughs> you know the sort of list is endless really um, but for me one of the greatest innovations I think uh, and I'm thinking with my historian's hat on here has to be the retention of the documentation of the era of not only state papers but personal papers you know just for example from my perspective studying the seven odd hundred years of the history of Hever Fever Castle, you can see a noticeable difference in the 16th century of the documentation that was amassed compared to the eras that came before. And this this richness, this thickness of evidence really allows us to get a policy, but get behind politics too. And it allows us to get at the people who are alive and who are governing and who are being governed. And I actually think that Thomas Cromwell has a lot to do with this sort of fastidious retention of this, uh, you know, this much documentation. Uh, For example, he certainly ensured that from 1538, we have parish records for the first time, (laughs) you know, compulsory ones. (laughs) Totally. And these are enormously helpful windows into the everyday and the extraordinary. So for me, this is one of the greatest innovations of the age, the thickness of the detail. We really can sort of open windows into people's souls to uh, steal a lovely phrase from the, from the time. And that's everything to me as a historian. I really want to get not just at the, the policy, but the people and ordinary people too. I'm thinking here of um, Professor Susanna Lipscomb's wonderful work, Ordinary Women in France. You can't do that with other eras that that come before. You really can't. Not to the degree um, that you can in the early modern period. So yeah, that's my take on what the greatest innovation of the era was. I'm just so fascinated by those more quiet personal moments as well. And, And as you say, they are very difficult to get to of course, because they are quiet and personal moments. However, they reveal so much and they're so telling. So I think we, you know, as challenging as it is, we need to to keep pursuing that as well as the big moments and the big, you know, politics going on. But the parish records, it's so funny that you mentioned that because yes, 1538, as you said, but it took a little while to kind of come into action which sadly has left us missing a lot of information for people such as Mary Boleyn that I have driven myself Uh, completely bonkers trying to find you know a funeral date for her or a burial date. We're all looking Um, for a grave aren't we my god. Yes Yes, I know I I feel that there's something out there to be found so you know let's persevere and of course you know Anne's birth had they been keeping yeah. those records from earlier, we wouldn't be having that discussion about when Anne was born or when George was born or when Mary was born. So it's just interesting that it came in, but just a little bit too late for what we are desperate to know. Just a little bit too late, isn't it? Oh, so frustrating. <laughs> oh, and you know what? It's time to spill the beans. We're just going to go for it here. I need you to spill the beans. And I, I know... <laughs> some of your <laughs> less favorite tutors but i think i think you have to share spill the beans on the tutors you love to hate it's tea time isn't it <laughs> it's really tea time it's tea so time. 
firstly, before we serve up tea, um, <laughs> I would like to put a disclaimer out there <laughs> that there are many people that I love studying and many that I dislike intensely. But I don't think it should matter on a personal level to us. As historians, if people don't agree with us, if people don't share our sentiments, that's fine. Like, there, there seems to be an odd trait from time to time where people take criticism of their favourite <laughs> historical figures as a personal insult. And I think it really is important to know that these people aren't, our, they're not our friends. They aren't our personality either. We shouldn't make them our personality. And I do think we should be respectful to a degree of people's right to detest uh, historical people we admire. Um, so basically, I'm saying don't come at me uh, after the tea. <laughs> So one of my all-time favourite people to hate has to be Thomas Howard. Oh, Um, yes. I think you've got a lot of people supporting you on that one. I find him to be a truly repugnant individual. It's very difficult to find any of his peers that respected him or his family or his wife. There really is nothing to like about him. It's quite an astonishing legacy, actually. And I kind of love to hate him, if you know what I mean. I'd kind of miss him if he wasn't there. Because I hate him so much. <laughs> so yes, he he has to be up there. This will be of no surprise to you, Natalie. Edward, <laughs> the boy king, uh, Edward VI, I find chilling. And that's that's actually, yeah, one of the things I should have said in the alternate histories. I actually think he him dying was, <laughs> sounds terrible to say, I'm glad a child died. Um, sounds really terrible, actually. This but... has deteriorated quickly, hasn't it? I know, I know. What am I doing? But I, I actually think his reign as an adult could have been cataclysmic, certainly for Catholics. I think, it, I, you know, I'm really trying to think of the, the bigger picture here. I, I think it could have been horrific, actually. I think he showed terrifying traits throughout his short reign. I actually had the, the privilege of seeing a, a, a small little book that Edward had essentially been practising French in and it's all addressed to the Lord Protector. Absolutely fascinating little little book. I'd never even heard of it before. I'd never seen it before and got the opportunity to see it and uh, Cambridge. Essentially what the Lord Protector was doing was asking Edward to, in his French lessons, focus on idolatry in the Bible and oh my goodness, it's, it's absolutely uh, the work of a zealot. It's terrifying. I really found it quite terrifying. I I think uh, he was actually almost groomed into that extremist position by Seymour, uh, the Lord Protector. But then, you know, what he goes on to do, and the probably the first king to to write a diary, and the chilling the chilling way that he writes about Somerset's execution keeps me up at night. Really, I find it terrifying i really really do it's so cold it's so detached and yes i i really think that alternate history would have looked quite horrific indeed but i have to say edward put aside that one of my least favorite characters of the age is thomas seymour lord protector's brother he utterly fascinates me he frightens me and often appalls me too. I actually have a feeling that he is one of those men who we probably, on a surface level, level would have liked. I think he could easily charm. He was probably very good company. And I think his ability to use wit and charm enabled him to do truly appalling things, such as his wholly inappropriate uh, actions and advances towards his stepdaughter, the then 13-year-old lady Elizabeth, future Queen Elizabeth at the first. Now, there's often this argument proffered that girls at that age could be married at 13. Actually, consummation was not at all desired at 13. And certainly, you know, sex out of wedlock at 13 was not at all desired. You know, it's a really, actually, a really daft argument to put up. Because, of course, Seymour was married to the Dowager Queen Catherine Parr at the time. So nothing good at all could ever have come of his wholly inappropriate behaviour. And today, of course, we would absolutely recommend uh, recognise it as child abuse. We shouldn't recognise it then, per se, as child abuse. We, that would be looking through modern eyes. But it was frowned upon at the time. Yeah. It was yeah. not desired behaviour. And... Um, he has to be up there, mainly, I think, because 
he probably would have been able to groom us all into not seeing what he was doing. And I think that is even more frightening than some of the more overtly horrific behaviour. Yeah, I think that's I, even more terrifying. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to make, that even in the case of Thomas Seymour, if we set aside our, our modern lens for a moment and just think about what his contemporaries would have thought of his behaviour, it was still completely and utterly inappropriate. So I think, as you yes. say, when, when people say, oh, but they got married, you're so right to point out that even in those cases where sometimes they were married quite early at 14, they did not cohabit, usually not until 16 or later, and they certainly would not have been recommending any sort of sexual activity prior to at least 16 or, or, or older yeah. even. You know, so setting aside our kind of disgust for that, just, you know, his contemporaries would have thought the same. But um, I think, so I think, I think, Owen, you're safe. You're safe for now with Thomas Howard. I don't see anybody starting a Thomas Howard society. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, we've got a Henry VII society. We've got an Anne Boleyn society. We've got a Richard III society. I don't think we're going to see a Thomas Howard society. Perhaps I'm wrong. Perhaps someone out there is planning one. So I think you're pretty <laughs> safe there. Thomas Seymour, I'm not sure, because as you say, he's managed to charm people back then. He's managed to charm people now. So beware. There may be some Twitter messages on their way, <laughs> on their way to you. Oh, and yes. I think you're pretty safe with Edward as well. I don't think there's anyone that's yeah. going to come to Edward's um, <laughs> rescue. <laughs> so that was fun. All right. So you've told us a little bit about your least favorite characters. Uh-huh. I would like to know about your favorite personalities and why they're your favorite i of course know one of the big major ones but i want to see if you've got any any little ones hidden in left field out there somewhere there are so many people i love in this era and i tend actually to have an affinity mainly with women of the era i love all of the queen's consort and the queen's regnant of the time i really don't get tribal about it even though as you mentioned Anne Boleyn is my homegirl. I have a burning love for Queen Catherine of Aragon and her really magnificent daughter, Queen Mary. And I think actually we have begun to turn a corner away from having to be on teams with these queens. There's plenty of room for all of them. But I'm actually not going to name any of the queen's regnant or consort. I'm going to mention Jane Parker, Lady Rochford. I have an acute fascination with this woman. I can't can't really describe how much she fascinates me. And this began at a really very young age. And I've been through all the fields with her, actually. I've seen her as this truly awful reckless villain to seeing her in a much more rounded light thanks to the scholarship of Julia Fox, Adrian Dillard and Charlie Fenton but I still can't can't quite get at her do you know what I mean we're chiefly seeing her through other people's eyes and I have so many unanswered questions chiefly surrounding the concept of what were you thinking, Jane? And I would give I would give good money to sit down with her over a few flagons of ale and try to get to understand her better because I am still puzzled and I'm still fascinated. I I think she is sort of an exceptional individual, but I can't quite explain why. You're absolutely right. She is. She's there's this element of mystery about her which makes her all the more intriguing. And you know, yeah. if, if when people read my forthcoming book they may notice a little bit of repetition when it comes to Jane Rochford because I just felt that I needed to say so many times that she had nothing to do with Anne and George's downfall yeah and I I found myself saying it on several occasions because I know how you know the reputation that she's received and that the, the injustice of it being blamed for something she she didn't do for so many centuries so I apologize yes. if there is some repetition there I was attempting to get a point across and I hope that it you know that it does get across but we'll see we'll soon find out but she yeah she's completely fascinating I'd love to know more about yes her relationship with George um, oh, I'd yeah. love to know more about her motivations as you say what yes. in God's name was going through her mind <laughs> later on when she was serving <laughs> Catherine Howard I do not know we can only guess at it and it's so frustrating so Owen what is something that's now thought lost and there's probably so many of these as well that you hope (laughs) will be rediscovered in the future so I've already mentioned uh Anne's letters yes yes so I'm not going to repeat myself so I'm going to answer very specifically on this occasion 
which is very rare for me. I want to find a small prayer book that was once in the Hever collection. Now, you know about this book. Yeah. Um, it was tragically stolen in a massive Pink Panther robbery in 1946, when nearly 1,500 items were taken from Hever. And of those precious items, this book was a real knockout. It was commissioned, we believe now, um, thanks to the scholarship of William Aslett, by Robert Dudley, fascinating character for Queen Elizabeth I at the time she was going to marry the Duke of Anjou and this little prayer book only measured two by three inches and inside were six prayers written in five languages the first and last in English and the middle prayers in French, Italian, Latin, and Greek, respectively. And these, of course, are the languages spoken by Elizabeth. It was bound in black material and had gold enamel clasps, each adorned by a ruby. And inside were two portraits, one of Anjou and one of Elizabeth. And these were especially created by the celebrated court artist Nicholas Hilliard and is widely believed from the few black and white images that we have of these portraits to have been his finest portrait of Elizabeth. And God, what I would give to see this book I have thought about it so long. We have it beautifully detailed in our inventories. It sounds utterly extraordinary. It actually um, was believed to have been lost from about 1901. Uh, scholarship hadn't uh, been able to locate where it had gone after 1901. And of course, it had been purchased by Heaver's then owner, William Waldorf Astor. And of course, Heaver was an entirely private resident uh, before it was stolen in 1946. So precious few people knew uh, that it was living this beautiful treasure of Elizabeth's in her mother's old house at Heaver. So what I would give to have it back there. Actually, it's quite extraordinary, but the this Pink Panther robbery in 1946, not one of the items had ever been located. And there were many, many items stolen at the time. It was almost certainly stolen to order, and we've never heard of it since. So my goodness, if anyone knows of a tiny little book with yes. portrait of Elizabeth and Anjou, please get in contact, because uh, I would love to see it. It's an extraordinary story. And I remember we've spoken about the the robbery in another episode and an incredible coincidence that occurred with that particular book and another guest that I was interviewing. And, you know, everyone yes. can, can listen to that episode. I'll, I'll, I'll link <laughs> to that as well in the, in the show notes because that was just such a, a cool story. But I, I just think that robbery, it's like a Hollywood film, isn't it? It's the most incredible oh, yeah. thing. Even the getaway car, everything was just... Hollywood style like I think why haven't we seen a, a documentary or a fictional you know fictionalized account perhaps then it, the word would get out and maybe someone would realize that they've in fact inherited um, stolen goods which is what I imagine has happened I cannot imagine that that would have been discarded or you know and as you say yeah. how can none of those items have ever resurfaced it really makes no sense right really doesn't you know the the mastermind behind the robbery itself quite famous um he was known as as the pink panther so make a, make a cracking film Absolutely. really would you know yeah, the, the, so. the truth behind it was extraordinary really yeah Amazing. All right. Well, everyone keep a lookout for that in, you know, antique sales and, and all that sort of thing. So just to, to start wrapping up, Owen, because I, I know you've got some really exciting things on your agenda today. What do you think we can learn from the Tudors and how might this actually benefit us today? Such a great question, Natalie. And I think we can learn a huge amount from these fascinating people. At times when I'm flicking through the archives, I think to myself, oh, they aren't so different to us after all. And then at other times, I realise they are entirely and completely different to us. You get this sense of composure when you're studying them, and then suddenly you're jerked into a real sense of discomposure with them as well. And I chiefly work with the history of emotions. That, that's what my speciality is. And when you look at history through that lens, you can really get a better understanding of how we have changed. You know, concepts of love or fear and other emotions have entirely shifted across the centuries. You know, it's, it's hard always to recognise that we have all living now been through a seismic 
emotional revolution since the Tudor era. And feelings are now at the very heart of everyday life and politics. That revolution has completely changed the lives and expectations of ordinary people, and especially women and minorities. But it's important to recognise that before, for example, women had the kind of rights they enjoy now, they were still able to challenge the patriarchal norms, and they were still able to enact agency. And that's what I really take comfort from. Progress isn't a given. We aren't guaranteed to always enjoy the freedoms that were won for us by our ancestors. And, you know, we're living now in a time where we can actively see women's rights being stripped away from them, literally as we speak. It's genuinely horrific. But there are ways to circumvent draconian oppression. And looking back to the Tudor era and finding those women who refuse to bend and refuse to comply gives me hope. And I'm often asked, actually, if I'd like to visit the Tudor era. And I don't know if I would. (laughs) I might visit as a fly on the wall, but probably I'd stay well clear of living in that age we enjoy so much now you know they had very little health care uh, it certainly wasn't free at the point of use as we enjoy here in England I, I think oddly as as bleak as and, and as wonderful as some aspects of the Tudor era are I do take a little bit of hope that people got by do you know what I mean yeah that they they carved out their own paths even if they weren't able to fulfill their lives as they might have wished to so yes that's my that's my thing I think that we can learn from the Tudors right now yeah I think that's quite beautiful and I I love that sort of I don't know if love's the right word I'm quite fascinated intrigued I guess by that tension between how fragile humans are that fragility but also that incredible resilience and courage that people show throughout the ages and you know we can think of our ancestors who obviously endured a lot and I think we can take heart from it now and it's quite like I need that I need to draw from that now especially in the world that we're living that's kind of gone completely bonkers I think that that helps doesn't it it does Uh, it does help and you know it's it's not a life it's not a lifestyle to aspire to no (laughs) don't get me wrong but I think I think we can like I think we can draw hope and without hope I don't think we're much look for hope if you can yeah look for hope and look for the helpers is is what I always say because they're always out there absolutely the people doing good oh and yes uh, this has just been so fantastic as always and I just want to to really thank you from the bottom of my heart for returning to the podcast so many times and sharing so generously sharing your knowledge your wisdom your expertise you are such an amazing 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 person a historian as well but person and I I you know like I tell you all the time I adore you and thank you so much for for celebrating four years I can't believe it four years of talking Tudors today with me it is really it means a lot to me oh thank you so much um you're one of my heroes and it's a utter honor to be on your podcast again and thank you for all you do thank you for hosting this extraordinary podcast which so many people love and enjoy and i yeah can't wait to uh, enjoy our future projects together you are a, a remarkable talent thank you well, thank you so much. And while I still while I still have you here, I also just want to to thank the all the listeners from all over the world, all different countries, you know, all different walks of life. Thank you for tuning in to Talking Tudors. Obviously, without listeners, there's you know there's not much I can do with the podcast. So this has just blown my mind how popular the podcast has become and how beloved it is to so many people. I thank all the other guests that have come on and also shared their time with me. Um, I think it's so much more fun when I get to to talk to other people about what I love. And I I do feel that I was put on this planet to do this. This isn't a kind of side hustle. This is, this is my destiny. As dramatic as that might sound, I, I do feel that that is the case. So thank you to everyone who listens. Thank you. A huge, huge thank you to all the, the patrons who support the podcast so generously. This is why it's still here. This is why it's free. This is why it's gone from a fortnightly podcast to basically a weekly or even more regular than that podcast. And and I keep it up because I get motivated by their encouragement and their support. So if you do want to join the Talking Tudors patron family, 
Um, you'll find all the details on my website and social media accounts. But um, but thank you, everyone. And I cannot wait for the next, you know, episode, next installment of Talking Tudors. And thank you again, Owen. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.